morning. Today I'll be reading John chapter 5, 39 through 40. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to have to me to have life. Morning, church. You got your Bibles open up to John chapter 6, please. John chapter 6. Let me make a couple of quick uh, announcements, advertisements before we get into the lesson. First of all, guys, uh, back in uh, February, we had you mark your calendars for April the 27th and 28th. Uh, but we just got our graphics in this week from Chris. Did a fantastic job with these. This is our theme for our men's retreat, Fighting the Good Fight. Uh, and it's not so much about battle. We're going to be talking about doing spiritual warfare, doing spiritual battle, but not so much from a combative standpoint as it is making a different standpoint. And you can see on the uh, banner here, on the, on the graphics here, that these are some guys who are making a difference in a very unique way in that soldier gear. And we're going to talk about how we can do that in our world as well. Uh, I've also been asked, because we're making the quarter change here, uh, to share some announcements about some of the great classes going on. We have a curriculum base that has been running through our church now for almost two and a half years, and it's called Developing Disciples. We want so much for someone who comes to KCC or one of the Manita Bombs moves here to be able to start in a set of classes that moves and, and all the way through two and a half years that helps move you, I said that a little bit wrong, from here to there, from here to uh, maybe uh, not so mature a Christian to a much more mature Christian and we're doing it through some specific classes. This specific class, The Life You've Always Wanted, deals with how do I connect with God? Ron Shade's going to be teaching that on Sunday morning down in our new big classroom, uh, and he's going to do a great job with that. But if you'd like to have a little bit more of a textual study, uh, John Knight is going to be teaching one on the book of Colossians. Uh, he's going to be teaching that one up here in the uh, classroom right next to the, is it to the office or y'all going to be in the library? Depending on size. Okay, we'll figure that out a little bit later. But if you prefer a textual class, that's going to be there. Uh, we've got a, a couple of other classes on Wednesday evening. One of them is called... Um, the Christian atheist. Is it possible to, to wear the name of Christ and yet act like someone who doesn't even believe in God? They're going through that particular study through uh, Gregory Schell's and some of its videos, some of its class discussion. Uh, you'll love that class. There's also another class. Flip to the next one. Oh, no, I guess there's not another class. It's, it is. It's FPU, Financial Peace University. Uh, and we've already got our class packed for that one. Sorry, you can't come now. No, actually, we've had our first lesson this, this last Wednesday. We're taking uh, this coming Wednesday off uh, because we're not going to have any adult classes or any children's classes here on Wednesday night because of spring break. Uh, so if you would like to be a part of Financial Peace University, it's still a great time to get on. We had one young couple that uh, decided to join us this last week. There's plenty of room for you. So uh, Financial Peace University also on Wednesday night. Now, on to our series in the Gospel of John. I was having coffee the other day, and I had the pleasure of overhearing a conversation involving a brother in Christ. He'd been a missionary in Uganda. He has a PhD in philosophy. He's teaching at a Christian university, and he was talking about a class he was taking on the Quran. He was asked by the fellow sitting next to him, and again, I don't know the name of either of these guys, what's your takeaways from that? He said, why are you doing that? He said, well, number one, because of the great interest that's worldwide in the Muslim faith. Number two, because I feel like God's placed a burden on my heart for those that are in that faith. Rather than attend a Christian university, 
this fellow went on to say that he decided he was going to enroll in a course on the Quran to people who actually believed in the Quran and who taught it. So he's in a class with 18 other Muslims hearing about the blessings of the Quran. He's the only one there who's not a Muslim. From what I could ascertain, this fellow has to be, in my opinion, a devoted follower of Jesus, but he wanted to hear the Quran taught by devoted followers of Muhammad. I thought that's interesting. I remember him being asked by his friend, so how would you sum up what you're learning so far? He said, well, that for most of its history, Islam is a faith of a man pointing to a book. The Islamic faith is not historically about Muhammad. In fact, for much of Islamic history, Muhammad is admittedly an imperfect man. He's not considered perfect in any way. He's a prophet of God pointing to the Quran. And at the center of this faith is a book Muhammad believed was dedicated and dictated by God. He said it's very much a book-centered faith. It has a man, an imperfect man, pointing to a very perfect book, Muslims believe. He said, now this is what struck me as a central difference between Islam and the Christian faith. He said, and I love this, our faith is not about a man pointing to a book as much as it is a book pointing to a man. Hmm. I thought that was a distinction we could all hear today and get behind. The center of our faith is not a book. The foundation of our faith is not the Bible. And we should know by now from experience that just because someone has stored a lot of Bible words and Bible facts on their human hard drive, it doesn't automatically equate to a life that represents the character and the heart of God. Now, I'll just confess, far too often in my own life, I've seen that there is a huge disconnect between someone who's got some Bible knowledge and not exactly living a lifestyle reflective of Jesus. Now, used properly, I hope there's some overlap. I believe there's some overlap because the Bible has a purpose, and that is to point us to a man. Now, that's not just my thinking. Listen to the words of John as he is writing some of the Bible. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Man, I hope Bible study's got some value to it because <laughs> I've spent my entire life involved in it. But this book, this incredible, wondrous book, is just a means to an end. It's not the end. In John's words, as we've been reading over the last couple of weeks, it's a sign that points to Jesus. Now, make no mistake about it, this incredible book is a wonder in itself, written by several different authors from men on several different, in several different countries, but with one central message, inspired by the Holy Spirit, and exactly as God wanted it, it is a wonder, but it points beyond itself. And if that seems like a little bit of a sketchy theology for you, it's exactly the same theology many of you have been singing for the last 50 years. Here's a song that means a great deal to me. As a matter of fact, it's part of my almost weekly sermon preparation. See if you remember this song. Break thou the bread of life, dear Lord to me, as thou didst break the loaves beside the sea. Next verse, beyond the sacred page, I seek thee, Lord. My spirit pants for thee, O living word. 
In John 5, just before our actual text this morning, Jesus says to those who are opposing him these words. You study the scriptures diligently, thinking that in them you have eternal life. But these are the very scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Is there life in the scriptures? Absolutely. If you follow the one that they're pointing to. Not in the pages themselves, not in the words themselves, but beyond the sacred page is the Lord who is the living word. So, having said that, let's dive into this word and see where it points us this morning. Sometime after this, Jesus says in John 6, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, and that is the Sea of Tiberias. And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on the mountainside and he sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. And when Jesus looked up and saw the great crowd coming to him, he said to Philip, Where in the world shall we buy bread for all of these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered, it would take more than a half year's wages to buy enough bread for all of these to have a bite. Well, another one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, he spoke up. Here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. How far will they go among so many? Just have the people sit down, Jesus said. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves and he gave thanks and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. And when they had all had enough to eat, he said to the disciples, Go gather the pieces that are left over. Nothing is to be wasted. And so they gathered them and they filled 12 baskets with the pieces of five barley loaves, remember, who were left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. And Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Let's pray before we go on. Living word, would you please take this word through this unworthy minister and would you break it today like you broke those loaves so long ago and you shared the fish so long would you take this sack lunch of a sermon and would you turn it into a feast for us today we so need for you to come we so long for you father to come and to move among us to to allow us to see a sign of your power and your majesty Thank you so much for the scriptures that you've given us, but thank you even more for the one the scriptures points us to. We have come to remember him through his death, burial, and resurrection this morning, and we've come to commit to him our lives as we offer his bread to a world that's so hungry and in need for it. Father, we're not the only ones with this desire and vision and mission. Please be with the St. Peter Episcopal Church and those disciples that are there. Rally them like I hope you're rallying us today to be the bread bearers for a world that's starving to death. In Jesus' name we pray and everyone said. <laughs> you know what your phone says every now and then. Battery's low. Now some say, oh, did y'all hear that? That's an awful sign, isn't it? 
battery below 20% warning battery below 10% warning you're about to lose communications and your life warning warning Gail and I uh, traveled to Florida last week to a conference and um, both of us saw that sign on our phones so that in every airport that we were at, we were looking for a power source to plug in so that we could have our phones with us on the plane. Because that's how you watch movies on the plane. <laughs> when we see the sign of the battery that's going dim, we know that we've got to get our phone to a source of power or it's going to go off. No, our worlds don't end, but it almost seems like they do sometimes. It's the same with us. Jesus was God in the flesh but he was just like us and occasionally his body would run low and he needed to be recharged he needed to replenish and he like any of us with all the demands that are on us and around us had to get away he had to get his cup filled in a way that only time alone with God can so that's what he's doing when we come to John chapter 6 he's seeking just that he goes to the opposite side of the Sea of Galilee it's the eastern shore it's the more remote place in Galilee all to enjoy some downtime with the disciples and his father but the crowds won't have that because they've seen signs that he can do and he might be the Messiah they think and they can't get enough of what he offers just about the time he kicks off his sandals and starts to lean back he looks and there are 5,000 men coming John says I think you can empathize with that it's the end of the day and you're worn out and you get home can you imagine there being 5,000 telemarketers all waiting to call you. Somehow or another able to get through the blocks you have on their phone and they all want to talk to you now. And they will talk to you now or else. Hmm. John says in verse 4, it's Passover time. It's crazy time around Jerusalem, any part of almost Judea. This is the 4th of July for the Jews. Passover marked the, the liberation of Israel from Egypt. We know that. At the center of this great celebration is some bread, though. Sometimes we forget that. This bread was similar to our unleavened bread that we just enjoyed a few moments ago in our communion service. Flat as a pancake, not like the cracker you probably took, but some of you have actually had some communion bread that people have prepared outside of what we purchased from a store. But it was flat, and there was a reason why it was flat. It was prepared in haste as the Israelites were leaving Egypt and making their way out of bondage. And because it was done in haste, they didn't have time to allow the leaven to influence it and cause it to rise, and so it's got a flat consistency. But it was bread. That was part of their deliverance. And then again, it was bread that was part of their journey from Egypt into the Promised Land, bread that fell from heaven six days a week. It's called manna. A double portion filled the day before the Sabbath, all as a symbol to the Israelites, God cares about you, and he will take care of you. And so you have Jesus and disciples looking out, and Jesus says to Philip, interesting, where can we buy bread for all these people? And John kind of gives us a little aside in his gospel. Not that this is a question that puzzles Jesus or he's really curious or caught off guard, but he's given Philip a chance to think for a moment about where this bread might come from. And you'd like to think some disciple would say, well, hey, are you kidding me? We got the guy who turns water into wine. We got the guy who helps cripples walk. We got the guy who heals people in another zip code with just a word. 
Jesus has got this. 5,000 men needing bread. Thought about that this week. It's about our seating capacity over here in Antler Stadium. Did you know that? About 5,000 is about what it'll hold. Can I, can I get you to think for a second? The last amen is said here, we leave here visiting, and we go outside and we see 5,000 storm refugees who are needing something to eat. <laughs> you wouldn't be prepared for that any more than this little group was prepared for that. 5,000 men. That's a lot of food. Well, that's not the only question I would be asking. John says these 5,000 men show up, stay all day, listen to Jesus, watch his signs and miracles, and they have no food. And I have to ask, how can they have no food? And I think the answer is, they're all men. That's how that happens. Now, Matthew's going to record that there were women there also. So we're not quite sure how come they'd be in need, but there's a chance that's probably not too far of a stretch for any of our imaginations that the reason why they've come without food, because that's the last thing that they're, they're concerned about. When they leave wherever they are to come see what's going on with this, this rabbi called Jesus, the healings that he's doing, the deliverances that he's doing, the teaching that he's delivering, it could be they're just storm chasers, sign chasers, but the word is out. And they're not going to rest until they've had a chance to see for themselves this Jesus character from Nazareth. Verse 6, Philip says to Jesus, Lord, there's a little bit more of a foundational question we've got to consider here. Even if we've got a source for food, <laughs> where are we going to get the money to pay for that? I mean, just to give these people a bite of food would take a half year's wages. Some texts say 200 days wages. None of us are carrying that kind of bank. Where's that going to come from? Well, Andrew speaks up. And I love Andrew's response. It's not just analyzing the problem. Sometimes we can just get so stuck in analyzing the problem. At least he's taking inventory and says, well, let's talk about what we have, all right? That's a great start. Let's talk about what we have, not what we don't have. Oh, we've got a little boy over here. He's got five loaves and a couple of fish. His mom packed him a lunch. The question's asked, but how far in the world, how is that going to go far enough for these folks? How in the world is it going to feed these people? How far can a stutter and a felony indictment on your record take you in politics? Ask Moses, one of the most revered leaders in all of the world's history. How far will the serving of oil and enough barley in the jar to cook one loaf of bread go? Ask the unnamed widow who was penniless and pantryless and had offered her last meal to a hungry prophet and wound up eating off of it for a year. How long can you wear one pair of sandals, mind you, when you walk on them every day for 40 years? How long will they last? turns out if you're the nation of Israel wandering in the wilderness, that pair of sandals will last 40 years. I love that we serve a God, a mighty God, that will take our not enough and help it be more than enough. Amen? I love that about him. I love that about him. As it turns out, this little boy's sack lunch can go quite a ways. Because Jesus takes the young man's meager resources and he feeds this incredible multitude of people. 
Now, Jesus could have rained down bread from heaven, just redone the manna thing. That would have not only been historical, but amazing. He could have performed a little twist to that manna miracle, but he started, and I love this, with what they had. Actually, he chooses to start with their not enough. Why? Because God uses short prayers and tiny acts of service and feeble faith and stuttering lips and timid trust and with it does more than any of us could ever imagine. I love that about it. You see, it's certainly been true for me. In a lifetime of preaching, sometimes you get ready on Sunday morning and it feels like you come to church and you have got a truckload of bread and a truckload of fish and you can't wait to share it. And then there's other times that you come to church and you stand in this place and it feels like all you have is a dried up Ritz cracker and one of Peggy's sardines from the cabinet back there. It's funny, all these years, there are weeks it feels like God and I, it just was hit out of the park. And I step down and people nod their heads and just go on their way as if nothing happened. And then there are those times when it feels like I'm just embarrassed about what just happened. What was that? How could you ever use that? And then someone finds me here, or if not here, they find me through the email or a note that's on my desk when I walk in and tell me how much that message mattered to them. And I think, go figure. And then I think, no, go God. <laughs> go God. All throughout Scripture, he does that. He takes Abraham's faltering faith. He takes Rahab's moment of clarity and courage. He uses Jonah's reluctant words of preaching and the widow's last two mites. And he does wondrous things with not enough. Not enough. No way it's enough. God takes Mother Teresa's doubts and largely legalistic preaching of my upbringing, and he's taken some of the most seemingly simplest ideas of his church, and he multiplies them. He takes them and works them beyond what we can ask or think. Some of you have participated in a rather small ministry called World Bible School. Bible studies that are sent out overseas that come back via the mail. Now they're being done through email. It's anything but something that's trendy as far as ministry in the world. But you've taken that ministry. In the quietness of wherever you've done that ministry, you've graded those Bible studies and you've mailed them back, and some of you have done that for decades. You never received a seminary degree. You've never seen the faces of those who said yes to Jesus. But through those five loaves and two fishes, disciples of Jesus have popped up all over the globe. I love that we serve a God who takes our not enough and makes it more than enough. But I continue to hear all the time, I'm just a one-talent person. I'm retired. I'm just a teenager. I'm a new Christian. And on and on the excuses go. And John writes to say, you watch what Jesus can do through your not enough. You sent one little text message this week because a thought out of the blue popped into your mind and you, you just 
pulled over with life and you just sent that text message not thinking much about it at all then you hear back from that person you need to know I needed that that little text like I needed air you're not enough became more than enough to somebody <laughs> we watch some goldfish stained fingers bring their little money down here and plop it in a bucket and God takes that money and he helps make a water well for another little girl across the globe so that she can have fresh drinking water. Not enough? Oh, more than enough with God. I love that. Jesus takes these five loaves and two fish and the twelve start passing it around. And an amazing thing takes place. It's the craziest thing. I would have loved to have been there. It's one of the things that I, I, I don't think accurately I've seen portrayed in a way that's believable on any movie screen yet. And I thought today, what, what if? What if we, we, we tried it, all right? What if we didn't do communion at all, but we started communion right over here with art? You, you, you wouldn't be up here because you'd still be leading singing, you know what I mean? So we can't start. We're going to start with art, all right? And we, we have one, one tray of cup, and we have one tray of bread, and we start... And we tell the church, all right, Jimmy's going to go ahead and preach, and we're going to take communion. And when it comes to you, just you take the bread while he preaches. And you're kind of watching because this is different. I mean, we, we, we don't do communion this way. And, and you see the one tray of bread and one tray of cups start here, and you're thinking, two rows maybe. And if I get to the fourth row, I ain't taking the leftovers, if you know what I mean. But that thing starts moving its way through, and I just preach a little bit. And, and again, you're taking communion, and all of a sudden, you're not paying attention to anything that I'm saying, kind of like what you're doing now. Because you're watching this thing move back through this section, it moves over to that section, it moves over to this section, and you're going, how are those people doing that? I mean, are they just really taking, well, I've seen the head go back, and I'm seeing the thing break, and there's no way that could have lasted more than one section. And all of a sudden, it gets to you. And every one of the cups are full. Oh, they've been faking it. That's what they've been doing, right? We start thinking of all the ways that can't happen. It was happening. They would hand some bread to someone, and all of a sudden they'd reach back to get some more, and that bread that they had torn off, it was back there. But not just that bread, but there was another loaf. And they'd take a fish to a family or two fish to a family, and all of a sudden they'd come back, and it's not empty. There's eight fish in there. And this just went on and on and on until finally... Everybody's had all they want, and Jesus says, guys, we've got to move out and pick up all that's left over. How does that happen? How does that happen? Because of a God who takes our not enough and is able to transform it into more than enough. That's the only way it happens. Verse 12. Go gather what's left, he says. Don't want to waste this. And you don't. When a boy's sack lunch becomes a feast, you don't want to waste any of that. And Jesus isn't going to, no matter how small the gift started with. What do you do with a guy who can turn a lunch into a buffet? You make him king. That's what you do. That's what this crowd wanted to do. King of the Jews. Leader of the rebellion. The force is obviously with him. He's Luke Skywalker. You better warn Darth Vader Herod. He's coming, baby. Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world, the scripture says, 
the people said. And Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain to be by himself. When this sign unfolds for this crowd, they quickly become convinced this is the one we've been waiting for. Now, this isn't the only sign that triggered this. This has been building. The miracles that I mentioned, the signs that I mentioned a while ago have all been pointing, this has got to be the guy. You see, for most of our world still, you can't be king unless you can come up with bread. And he's coming up with bread. Most of the struggles that come up in needing bread aren't struggles we really relate with much. Every now and then a missionary comes through or every now and then we have a, a special push to think about the hungry. But listen to me, church. Over half of the world still struggles with going to bed at night with enough to eat. And it's not because they don't have HEBs in their neighborhood. They just don't have the resources. And so, no wonder this miracle goes so deep with so many here. A lot of those in that crowd were struggling with enough bread to eat too. And so when this guy can provide it, we want him around all the time. Let's make this guy king. Because if you can deliver the golden egg here, maybe you can deliver it all the time. This is the only miracle that's contained in all four Gospels, interestingly enough. This miracle went deep with every single one of the writers of the New Testament. And so to a man impacted deeply by it, they understand why these folks wanted to make him king by force, but Jesus was not about to allow that. Next week, we're going to hear why. See, this week, he's the bread of life. He can bring the bread of life at least. Next week, not so much. Because next week, Jesus is going to say, listen, just because I can provide bread, that's not the big news. That's not the headline. The headline is this, I, I am the bread. See, Jesus not only can take your meager resources and do with them beyond what you could imagine, he will make sure you are sustained by a presence, his own presence, that most of us still have trouble imagining. But that's what he's offering. In the Chronicles of Narnia, the white witch is giving everybody bread. Her bread, though, is Turkish delight, remember? And it's amazing. And everybody who eats it devours it. And when they're finished, they've got to have more. Not just some, because that's never enough. They've got to have more. And you eat it and you want more. And you eat it and you want more. Sound familiar? to our version of Turkish Delight, whatever that is. I don't know what that is for you, but you have one. The bread that Jesus gives his followers, I'm telling you, it sustains you. It fills you in a way nothing else can. Listen to me, obsessing on new cycles, that's not going to fill you. Jobs on their own won't fill you. Money, vacations, great car, all those are nice additions to life, but they don't give life. They don't give life. 
The sign in John 6 of this multiplying of the bread points all of us to the one whose bread, to the only bread that fills you. And here would be the message, I think, John would want us to hear today, that Jesus is this thirst-quenching, hunger-ending, never-dying, joy-feeling, peace-sustaining, life-giving answer to your hunger. Question. Are you feasting on that? Are you feasting on him? Or your own Turkish delight? Man, I know the weeks when I'm guilty of feasting on my own Turkish delight. I know the difference. And my wife can see the difference, and my elders can see the difference, and you can see the difference. What are you feasting on? The one takeaway that I'd like for you to consider today is this. Please, Stop worrying over what you don't have. And just bring God what you do. You say, well, Jimmy, all I've got is sin. All I've got is mess and brokenness. Great. I'm, I'm glad you finally reached that place where you understand that's all you have to offer him. Because he says at the very beginning of the Beatitudes in, in Matthew, unless you are poor in spirit, broken in spirit, Unless you realize you are bankrupt before God, you can't even begin to get in his kingdom. That's where we start. And if you have never, never feasted on him, then I want to talk with you this morning about what that looks like as far as turning your life over to him, welcoming him inside you. But I have a feeling I'm talking to a lot of Christians this morning. Glad you're here. It's spring break and you didn't have to be. There'll be a lot of other places. But you're here today. Thanks for coming. And I think it's because God needed some of you to hear this. Would you please bring me your not enough? You've had it for quite some time. And I'd like to have it. Please. Let's see what we can do with that not enough. Now, I promise you this. There will come a condemning voice because... The devil is the accuser of the brethren. He's the accuser of anybody who would begin to try to bring anything, any kindness, any joy, any help. He's going to be right there saying, you think that's going to matter? <laughs> really? <laughs> Pitiful. I've heard that voice almost every Sunday of my life as I stood to preach. You will too with your little not enough. Your little sack lunch. The message is pretty simple today, but would you please bring that and let's see what God can do with that. It will be, I promise you, more than enough. Father in heaven, we love you. And that's easy for me to say. But only you, Holy Spirit, can help make it truth in our lives. We have come this morning um, just like those 5,000. We're hungry. And you know that the hunger pains from within and without aren't necessarily for you. We don't know what to do with that, but to just bring that to you and say, would you help us have a greater desire for you? Would you help us there? We'll bring you our not enough. And some of that, Father, is just believing we can find food elsewhere. We think that there's an answer elsewhere where we can be sustained and made whole. And we just come confessing that. 
that there's some Turkish delight. It tastes pretty good. Yes, we've experienced some of the, the setbacks and the paybacks that come with it, but it still tastes pretty good for the moment. We're asking, would you help us start right there in awaking a hunger in us for you? And you've brought some of us here today because you know we've been pocketing, we've been setting it on the nightstand. This not enough that we have, but it, it's what we have. It's a moment to give and share and do and be for others, for you. And yet, Father, we, we're just afraid to, to, to offer it. It just seems like so little. So we're asking you this morning, through the power of your spirit, would you help convince us that you need that? You could use that for the glory and the benefit of your kingdom. Father, we're going to celebrate some more in song. And we're asking you, Father, please help us leave here today amazed at what you've done in our hearts. Because they don't feel like near enough most of the time. We ask us in Jesus' name. And everyone said, let's praise in church. Let's stand and sing.